0: Christianity is very diverse, but all denominations share a common source that, by its nature, has created problems for which there is no biblical antidote. Tim Glover provides an alternative. Join him each Wednesday at 10 a.m. to share his studies with you. I want to talk about the good doctrine, or the good teaching, and I'm especially interested this morning in talking about First and Second Timothy and Titus. Paul has a great deal to say about teachers in those two books. I think it would be well to give some attention to the responsibility of the teacher with regard to his message. We've been emphasizing that we ought to be, it ought to be a very sober thing. James tells us, be not many of you teachers, knowing that you'll receive the greater condemnation. But you can go back to Deuteronomy in chapter 18, 18, when Moses predicts one who would come after him that would be a prophet, and that, of course, was Jesus. I think this is a messianic prophecy. But in verse 18, I'd like to read the words. Actually, this is words to Moses, but he's revealing them to the Israelites. And he says, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. Now, that's essentially the best definition, biblical definition of a prophet that I can think of. It's someone who speaks the mind of God. And so he is God's mouthpiece. I will put my words in his mouth, and he'll speak to them what I command him. That's what a prophet is. Later in 1 Kings 22:14, Micah the prophet, he was a faithful prophet, says, "As Jehovah liveth, what Jehovah saith unto me, that will I speak." And so the prophets would typically say, "Thus saith the Lord," and they'd be given an oracle, and they would uh, reveal that message from God to the people. When you come into the New Testament, of course, God's requirements of those who speak for him, whether it's a teacher today or a teacher in at that time who would have been had some aid of the Holy Spirit, it's still the same as far as the attitude with which one has. Uh, I believe that would be a principle of truth that we would have to accept today. If a person speaks, he is to speak as the oracles of God. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God, that is, the words or the utterances of God. And uh, again, I think if any teacher ought to make sure that if he says a word that's not from God, that he makes that distinction by saying, now, uh, this is not from the Bible, I have, this is just an opinion or something, if he's going to do it at all, I question whether we should do too much of that, we should definitely make that distinction. Nowhere is this point brought out with greater emphasis than in Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, these two young evangelists. Paul's beginning words to Timothy after the greeting gives a a large charge with regard to proper teaching. I'd like to read it to you. Listen to Paul. I'm in chapter 1, verse 3, beginning. As I exhorted thee to tarry at Ephesus when I was going into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge certain men not to teach a different doctrine, neither to give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questionings, rather rather than a dispensation of God which is in faith. So do I now. But the end of the charge is love out of a pure heart and good conscience and faith unfeigned, from which things some, having swerved, have turned aside into vain talking, desiring to be teachers of the law, though they understand neither what they say nor whereof they confidently affirm. But at the end, that is the object or the goal, if you please, of Paul's teaching or his charge, he says, is love out of a pure heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned. So further along, Paul would tell Timothy that he was he wars the good warfare. And as he does that, he is to hold faith and a good conscience. That's beginning in verse 18. Look at uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. So love and absolute confidence and trust in the Lord and the words of God. A good conscience before God. These are the qualities that will keep a teacher on course. Some, though, have thrust these qualities from them, Paul says and have consequently made shipwreck concerning the faith. I would uh, hasten to make a distinction here as we look at this expression, the faith, of the term. Paul isn't talking here about one's personal faith. He's talking about the body of truth, the faith. It's used that way on several, several cases in the New Testament. One that comes to mind quite often and one that uh, I've, I've quoted from for a number of years is Jude 3. Where Jude is told, it says, Contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He's not talking about one's personal faith when he uses this expression, the faith. He's talking about that body of truth, that gospel message, that new, that revelation that has come uh, from the mouth of God through his holy apostles and prophets that they heard in that generation. Now, in an earlier passage, Paul writes of some who swerved from these things and thus turned aside unto vain talking. Vain talking is talking which does not serve the ends that God wants to be accomplished through teaching. It's vain in the sense that it it accomplishes nothing. It's empty. It's void of any power. And in chapter 4, now Paul would warn in the express words of the Spirit that apostasy lies ahead. It was soon ahead. And then he tells Timothy, how to prepare for that crisis. He says in chapter 4, of this is all in First Timothy, verses 6 and 7, If thou put the brethren in mind of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished in the words of the faith, there it is again, and of the good doctrine. See, so you have already a definition of what that the faith is. The words of the faith and of the good doctrine, or the good teaching which thou hast followed, until now. But he says, refuse profane in old wives' fables. So here is what God wants in his teachers. Men who are nourished, Don't notice it now, this is verse 6, nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. Uh, and men who will reject themselves, their own opinions and their own thinking in favor of letting God's word rest and have the final say. That's the wisest thing teachers can do, my friends. Paul goes on to admonish Timothy to exercise in order to the development of godliness, that is to say, a reverence for God, which he says is profitable not only for this life, but for the life to come as well. Paul would say further in chapter 4, verse 9, just a few verses further down, uh, about the the value of teachers taking heed to these things, and certainly I think there's still still value in having these attitudes and these qualities. Notice he says, Faithful is the saying, and worthy of all acceptation. This is beginning in verse 4. For to this end we labor and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of them that believe. These things command and teach. Let no one despise your youth, but be thou an example to them that believe in word, in manner of life, in love, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give heed to reading, to exhortation, and to teaching. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Be diligent in these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy progress may be manifest unto all. Take heed to yourself and to your teaching. Continue in these things, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and them that hear you. All right, well, next we come to First Timothy chapter 6. This is the last chapter of, that, of the little letter. And look at verse 3, beginning with me. If any man teaches a different doctrine and consents not to sound words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching which is according to God in us, He is puffed up, knowing nothing, but doting about questionings and disputes of words, whereof comes envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, wranglings of men corrupted in mind and bereft of the truth, supposing that godliness is a way of gain. There are two kinds of doctrine, essentially. One consists of sound words, and he says the words of Jesus Christ. These sound words are so because they are healthy. They are spiritually sound in the sense that they cause the hearer to be, or those who apply, of course, to be sound, to be in good health. So he says, follow the sound words, consent to sound words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is another teaching other than this that promotes healthy spiritual condition and, and, and a healthy person. And it's the, intended to be the very opposite in this word doting. This is a usually a different doctrine, but not necessarily. It's the teaching of a person who is puffed up, puffed up with pride and self-esteem, knowing nothing but doting about. This word means literally sick. He's sick about questionings, that is, that is matters that are speculative, uh, and disputes of words. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I believe words are the vehicles of thought and proper words of uh, biblical words are words that we need to be speaking rather than language of the Ashdod. We need to talk in the language of the New Testament scriptures. We need to speak as the oracles of God, as Peter said. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be careful about the words that we choose or that words have certain meanings that need to be brought forth and emphasized. Many times our translations translate uh, the Greek words incorrectly. I just have to be frank about that. There are a lot of things about the King James Version that I personally have a lot of problems with as it pertains to, uh, I don't believe there's anything that pertains to salvation that would give us fits, but there are some very differences. I, I want to, after our series is over, to look at some of them. And hopefully you'll be impressed and, and uh, benefit by it as, as much as I have been. But this word "doting" means someone who's sick. So again, there's a con- contrast. It's intended. There are words that produce health and soundness. And there are words that produce sickness. They're sick words. And what's the difference? The words of Jesus Christ. Those words that are either authored by or that came straight from his mouth. They are the words that are healthy words and words that we need to choose. They are indeed the oracles of God. The Greek word represented by this last expression, Thayer says they're disputes about words, wars of words, he says, or about trivial and empty things. I remember many years ago, a brother in the tradition of which I was a part at the time got up and... uh, did a little speech on how we ought to pronounce the word Yahweh, and uh, he really came down and chided us every one of us for not pronouncing it correctly. And I, I believe he didn't pronounce it Yahweh, he pronounced it some other way, and he was convinced that was the right way, and we were wrong to to say it the way we were saying it. Well, friends, that's doting about questions of no value. Uh, they weren't even speculative. It, it was obviously an, a statement of ignorance on his part, but it was divisive and it caused division. And it's the, those kinds of things that we ought to distinguish. It would ought to be left unsaid at all, to be honest with you. But if it is to be said, it ought to be said with, very, with lightness. And uh, again, making distinctions of, between a statement of opinion versus the words of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the type person under consideration here who has such a morbid interest in and attachment to such things that are of no value to the soul. And Paul describes him and his doctrine as being sick. Such teaching, Paul has said, is destructive of the spiritual health of people. Instead of promoting godliness, notice what he says it produces. I'm looking at the verse again. It says, noting about questions and disputes of words, whereof cometh, and he names a number of things. In other words, that kind of divisiveness, those kinds of wars about words of no profit, empty as far as any value of a soul is concerned, they produce certain things. Listen to it. Number one, envy. With the participants in such word battles, each person is afraid the other will come out with the advantage. And so you've got to have something. <laughs> you've got to pretend that you know more about a word than maybe anybody else. Pull pull out the Greek and say, well, now I've studied Greek and I'm telling you that word means this. Uh, And, you know, that happens sometimes. A lot of times, division and conflict and much, much of the time is over words. They're just different way of saying the same thing. We're really trying to get at the same point, maybe some slight variation, but we're arguing about words and uh, not the principle that we're trying to, to reveal and trying to get across. The second division or second uh, thing that such words and sick words promote and produce is strife. Now, you, you can that kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? It's the condition that exists when brethren are at war with each other and over such trivial things. Third one he says is railings. Now we're getting a little rougher, you might say, because someone who who rails at something is someone who's speaking evil of it or evil of them. Uh, they make it, it's associated with cursing uh, and not necessarily four letter words, but again, speaking evil or cursing the individual. And sometimes you know that's what people do. They 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 forget. What the scriptures teach, and uh, try to understand what's being said between the two parties. They would rather just attack them for being either ignorant or or whatever thing they're speaking evil about. Uh, but they're bringing something up that might sway the minds of those who are listening, who have a choice or an option to choose perhaps one or the other, and that happens often. That to be able to say something that would uh, put them down, so that. Uh, though the listeners might see them as being the more reputable of the two. Railings, then, comes as a result of people who argue about words to no profit. Evil surmisings. This is the old King James way of talking about evil suspicions. It involves questioning a person's motives. And it's interesting, isn't it, to you when you hear people say something about another's reason for action or their motives? as if they could read their mind. I mean they they must be God himself because it would take God to know what people are thinking. But we we've got it all figured out. We know exactly why they did what they did. Be careful, friends. Of course, whatever the context may be, uh that's a real dangerous dangerous thing to begin. But in this particular context, it's the result of people arguing about words to no profit. Is they they start, again, there's nothing substantial there to fuss about. And so now they got to fuss, they've got to tear one another down. So they do that by having this attitude of strife and speaking evil of them. And then fourthly, putting bad motives on their action. Well He just said that because, and, and attached some evil motive to it. And of course, the fifth and final one is wranglings. Similar to the one we looked at earlier, the word strife. This word uh, art and Gingrich describes it as mutual of constant irritation well that's a that probably is a good place to end at that description because it it usually leads to that point you've gone so far and you've argued and and d- divided over something of no value for so long that now just the person's presence is an irritation they can't say anything but that you put a bad motivation on it they can't say anything but that you think, well, where'd they come up with that and talk evil about them? And so it has deteriorated to that point. Well, that's the kind of thing that happens when a person is sick. They're arguing about speculative things that really don't matter one way or the other. Well, that's, uh, that's what comes when we stray from the doctrine that's according to godliness. Uh, God's people cannot stand much of this without being destroyed, and how much we need to be a person that is intent on speaking as the oracles of God, letting God's word rest for what it says in order to head off these unhealthy teachings before it can even get started. That's the best advice that Paul could give a young t- evangelist. We cannot read this whole epistle and at once closing. I wish we could just read it all, but our time wouldn't allow us. But every teacher of the word of God needs to read 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And they need to read it often. If they intend to do any teaching, they need to read it and to keep their words constantly on uh, their hearts. There is not a major passage in them that does not contain something useful and instructive to teachers. The first letter to Timothy closes with these words. This is chapter 6, verse 20. O Timothy, guard that which is committed unto thee, turning away from the profane babblings and oppositions of the knowledge that is falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. There it is again. And he said, then grace be with you. Now let's take time to pick up a few passages from Second Timothy. Look, for example, at chapter 1, and I'll start at verse 13. Hold the pattern of sound words which thou hast heard from me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Now listen to chapter 2. In chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Thou therefore, my child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Then in chapter, same chapter, verse 14 now, this is a wonderful summary of the all the admonitions about teaching. Uh, verse 14, Of these things put them in remembrance charging them in the sight of the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, to the subverting of them that hear. The words, you see, of Jesus Christ, they're sound words, and they will promote soundness. They will promote healthy, unhealthy spiritual life. But word battles about trivial matters that are of no value and can only bring ruin to those who hear, that is to be abstained from. Now, Oftentimes, what the best thing we can ask or some of the questions we can ask is, is it going to change anything? If it's not intended to produce a change or in some way remind us of our obligation and what we ought to be about, then obviously question whether it's even good to say it at all. Now, listen, listen to the grand admonition to verse 15. Paul would remind young Timothy that when he teaches, he is not representing or presenting himself to men. He's he's not just doing that and them that here. He's presenting himself to God, you see, because he's a servant of the Most High God. And thus, he admonishes in verse 15, Give diligence to present yourself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, handling aright the word of truth. Well, I like that expression. The King James did very good on that, I believe. But this word study is the old English way of saying give diligence to something. It doesn't carry the same thought that is presented today. Study then meant to endeavor with some thought and some planning. To be an intelligently zealous person, or as the noun is defined, to be earnest and reasoned uh, to give a a reasonable effort and desire and thought to something. These are the meanings of the word study, to give diligence to something. And, And all the Greek scholars who've studied it would agree with you. That's not something that I've come up with this morning. It means to take great pains and to exert oneself, to put forth some diligent effort. And so Paul's words here are not so much an admonition to study in the more ordinary sense as to use diligence in teaching proper. He says again with this in mind, give diligence to present yourself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed. You see, he, you you're not going to be ashamed because you have put in the effort. You have given due diligence, if you please you have handled aright the word of God. Let's suppose, uh, think of this, of the disgrace. Uh, Imagine someone that you have a lot of confidence in, that you have a lot of respect for, that's a, a fellow Christian. You're talking through something with somebody, it doesn't matter what context it's in, and all of a sudden this fellow walks in the door that you have a lot of respect for. You have no idea what you're saying, but you're convincing everybody listening to you that you do. And he's listening to you, And you know you're digging a hole further and further in the ground. There's nobody to hold your feet to the fire or hold you accountable for what you're saying because there's no one there that's knowledgeable enough to correct it except him. And he sees it. I don't know if you're like most people, but usually that's a very humiliating kind of thing that would happen. It would be very disgraceful because here you're stuck and you're being exposed in the presence of a man that you have a great deal of respect for. Can you see that? Now what I want you to do is Just replace that man and take him out and put Jesus Christ there in his stead. Now, how would you feel about it? Think of the shame that would be yours to be caught dealing so faithlessly and carelessly with the words of Christ and making arguments about things of no value, of no profit. And that really is all speculation. That would be pretty disgraceful. We need to be warned because there is someone listening to the things that we are teaching. And he is does hear what we're saying, and that shame and that humiliation in the presence of such greatness it ought to cause us to marvel it ought to cause us to be more careful about the things that we are prepared to say hear it one more time then give diligence to present yourself a workman needeth not be ashamed handling aright the word of truth and then Paul follows that wonderful verse with the admonition verse sixteen shun profane babblings and they will and they will proceed further unto ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a gangrene. Now we can't, again, can't quote the whole book here, but now let's look at verse 23. But foolish and ignorant questionings refuse, knowing they gender strifes. Then he turned to chapter three and we find Paul warning Timothy of evil and dangerous times. He says uh, that thou abide in the things that you have learned and the things that you've been assured of, knowing of whom you've learned them, and that from a babe you've known the sacred writings, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. Every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Now, if one needs teaching, scripture is what we must use to teach him. If one needs reproof, he must use the scriptures to reprove him. If one needs correction, the scriptures are what we must use to correct him. If one needs instruction or discipline, or the education that is in righteousness, the scriptures are sufficient for that also. God has provided everything we need to equip the teacher for every good work. Never let us forget it, and never let us be found using a substitute.